Bows and TKOs, episode 11. I'm your host, Shane Gillette. We live with a full slate of MMA action as I'm still here in the 406 in Montana. It's a hot summer day in August. The smoke is flying in from the the fires that we've been able to escape for some time. Uh, But I am excited to talk about MMA. We got the Ultimate Fighter, episode 12 recap, Dana White Contender Series 1 and 2, MMA matchups, new fights that have been announced. We're also going to recap UFC Fight Night Vegas 78 and preview the massive, gigantic UFC 292 card headline by the Sugar Show 406 stand-up, the hometown kid, Sugar Sean O'Malley. So before we talk MMA, um, we're going to jump a little bit just, you know, what I've been up to in Montana. We've been out here for two weeks now, um, enjoying some of the beauty that Montana has to provide, hitting the lake, getting some golf in, meeting some family and friends. I'll be here next week for one more episode until we go back to Arizona and I will be there for the uh, 292 recap. And then we have plenty of more MMA action every single week. So before um, we talk the uh, past week in UFC, let's talk about some of the matchups that is going around in the UFC and MMA and some of the news that is, is broken in the MMA world. So we got Neil Magny, Ian Gary official for UFC 292 last week. We, I talked about seeing on social media that Neil Magny was signing a contract right when Ian Gary was talking about needing a new opponent. And uh, we already knew Ian Gary wanted this fight, right? We knew that he was talking about wanting to fight Neil Magny. Neil Magny is never going to turn a fight down, especially the opportunity to shut down one of the more hyped young stars in the UFC. So really excited for that short notice fill-in that's going down this weekend. We also had... Javid Basharat taking on Victor Henry, September 23rd. The Basharat, uh, Basharat brothers have come into the UFC and really taken uh, the MMA world by storm. And they look like some serious contenders. And of course, with Javid's announcement, Farid has his announcement taking on Kledson Rodriguez earlier in September, September 2nd. And that's two really good young quality uh, fighters going to square up um, in early September. We have Chris Gutierrez and Montel Jackson, October 7th. Uh, This is a great bantamweight fight as Chris Gutierrez looks to protect his spot in the top 15 rankings. And I don't know if Curtis Blades is like, give me anyone, anywhere, I don't care. Or the UFC's like, hey man, you want to protect the top of the rankings, you got to fight these killers. But after taking on Sergey Pavlovich, Curtis Blades is taking Jaelton Almeida, I mean, can you talk about a banger, a scrap? That's going to be must-see TV. We can't blink in this uh, uh, matchup November 4th, and this will be in Sao Paulo, Brazil for a fight night card. Just recently announced we have Nate Maness and Matus Mendonca uh, October 7th for a great flyweight showdown. And then Ian Gary posted in his video blogs leading up to this massive UFC pay-per-view card this weekend. He was training with Chris Curtis. He had a rib pop uh, pop out. So he is out in his fight against Anthony Hernandez, September 16th. But insert uh, a guy that I just saw in Salt Lake City that's on a roll, Raman Kapalov. He's stepping in. That's going to be another fantastic matchup. 
And then, not official, but I had hinted about this in um, Bows and TKOs, a fantastic matchup for Kevin Holland. He, you know, he, he's bouncing back and forth between weight classes. He's not fighting for a title shot, but he wants to get a, a, a match where he can strike. He can let his kickboxing flow and one that will be a fan favorite. So we got Kevin Holland, Jack Della, Madalena, September 16th. Can't wait for that matchup as Big Mouth re-enters the octagon. And speaking of that card, Stephen Thompson uh, officially not getting paid from his pullout, although his opponent was three pounds overweight. He decided not to move through with the fight. And Dana says, if you don't fight, you don't get paid. This is a veteran who has put on, you know, a ton, a ton of shows, has made a lot of money for the UFC. Uh, big bummer for uh, Stephen Thompson. You know, he tried to back his standpoint of how opponents are missing weight. It's affecting um, some of the fights and, and can be seen as somewhat of an advantage and that fighters need to hold their ground. So it's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds. I doubt Dana um, changes anything anytime soon, but definitely a bummer for Steven putting all that, that time in, doing his part, making weight, showing up on time, and, you know, here we are. Damn bug. Uh, Derek Lewis getting a new eight-fight deal after the insane up-knee knockout that he had. Um, he was going to be a free agent. He talked about that in his post-fight interview. But he's not going anywhere. He's staying in the UFC, rightfully so. Dana White and the matchmaking crew, great job for making that happen as we cannot afford to see the Black Beast in any other promotion. Uh, Cordy Garbrandt is pulling out of his fight due to injury this week at 292 against Mario Batista. I was pretty excited for this fight, but insert Damon Blackshear doing his, big, his best big mouth impression subbing in for um, um, Cody Garbrandt in a week's notice after submitting his opponent to a twister. He's right back in action this week. One crazy change of events, but I almost think this will probably be a better stylistic matchup for the main card. So if you haven't already bought that pay-per-view, even more of a reason to do so. And um, let's talk Ultimate Fighter. So the final episode of Ultimate Fighter, we... I thought was a solid episode. We got to see both coaches take their guys out, enjoy some time with them. Chandler came to the house. They had a crawfish boil, um, which was quite interesting. And then Connor, of course, going flashy to a nice steakhouse with his boys. Um, it's just cool to see these fighters as people. That's why I enjoy the Ultimate Fighter. Um, to be honest, I've actually enjoyed the Ultimate Fighter more so than I have the Dana White Contender Series thus far. The Contender Series, very short video intros of the fighters and the fights. I just don't think the quality of fighting is that and that, I don't know. There's very good Contender Series fights, and sometimes there's some really high-quality uh, fighters there. But from what I've seen the past two weeks, I've enjoyed the Ultimate Fighter more, especially really getting to invest in the fighters. This season, having some veterans who have the comeback story potential, getting the UFC coaches, seeing them banter, talk shit, uh, that's the stuff that I like. And then when it came to the fight, I mean, this was complete dominance by Cody Gibson. Uh, he, he wanted to, you know, stay healthy as he's battling a knee injury as he heads towards the finale against Brad Katona. And boy, did that show do a good job building the, the drama and the theatrics for this fight as him and Cody Gibson and Brad Katona just getting back and forth at each other, saying that they hate each other. Nobody likes Brad, yada, yada. 
Um, so it'll definitely be an interesting matchup for the bantamweight finale. I do personally think that, uh, I don't know, uh, Brad Katona, you know, is going to have quite the advantage and will break that fight down. But it was a good episode. I enjoyed it. But let's dive right into the contender series. We had episode one, Kevin Borjas, the 25-year-old flyweight, getting a contract looking great. I'm surprised uh, by the amount of contracts Dana's given. If it's not an exciting fight, complete dominance or finish, usually he's pretty hesitant on providing the contracts. Maybe because some of these less quality fights have been in the light heavyweight division where the UFC lacks depth. Maybe that's why there's been so many contracts. I believe five contracts in both episode and episode, episode one and two. But Kevin Boris looked the real deal. Borjas looked like the real deal. Only 25 years old. A lot of these guys coming into the contender series very young um, and already, you know, showing their strengths and sh and obviously have the opportunity to grow a ton until they enter their prime in the in the UFC if they get that contract. Another good young fighter. We had the 24-year-old Peyton Talbot, 5'10 bantamweight. He looked like uh, he could be a knockout artist in this division. So I was really impressed with what we saw from him. And again, only 25 years old, uh, 24 years old, nice lanky bantamweight, you know, kind of has the frame of the sugar show. Um, and he's a knockout artist. So watch out for Peyton Talbot. Um, he fought junior Cortez who looked really good. This is the second time doing the contender series. Tracy Cortez's brother, um, you know, at 30 years old, I thought potentially they would look at maybe giving him the contract instead of the light heavyweight. That wasn't the case, but, you know, stay tuned for Junior Cortez. He fought a really good young opponent. And then even younger stud, we have a 23-year-old lightweight, Tom Nolan. 6'3", long, ranky, looked great. He's, he's definitely going to be a fighter to keep your eye on. And then, to be honest, in Episode 2, I don't think there was any fighter that really gave me the, oh, I got to tune in, I got to watch this guy. Um, I'm going to murder this guy's name, but we had... Charles Lampos Gregorio with a round one TKO. I did think it was an early stoppage, but I think he would have got the finish anyways. Uh, he looks solid getting the contract. We had um, Eduarda Mora with a dominant round one. She basically got a takedown quick, had top control, was able to find the, the back and the neck for a rear naked submission. Uh, Ibo Aslan with a round one TKO finish. Good frame for the light heavyweight division. And then in the final, the final fight of episode two last night, Al Silwadi looked good at lightweight. Um, three rounds as an underdog. Looked really well-rounded on his feet. Supposedly has some grappling game, although he did not um, showcase any of that in this fight. So two episodes down of the Contender Series. New fighters, bunch of UFC contracts. Um, really interested to see the, the, the coming episodes. But that episode one, there was definitely some very, very good young, young talent that uh, we should keep an eye on. Outside of those shows, there was some action um, in boxing this past weekend. Uh, one of the more famous boxers, Anthony Joshua, with a vicious, vicious round seven knockout over Robert Hellenius. And um, uh, I'm sure you saw it. it went viral. Big moment for him. In my mind, you know, I don't know who Robert Hellenius is. I'm not that hardcore of a boxing fan. But this was a must, must win fight for Anthony Joshua. And then we had Bellator 298 go down this past weekend. Logan Storley with a nice win over Brennan Ward via round two TKO. 
Um, I expected that to be a dogfight. I'm, I'm surprised he got the round two finish. And then very good fight by Sydney Outlaw defeating Islam Mamedov uh, uh, via unanimous decision. So another good win by Sydney. I was excited to see Kai Kamaka fight. That fight got canceled. I'm not too sure why. And then was really excited to see um, Wyoming's own Bryce Misfit Meredith. Uh, but he pulled out due to an injury a couple weeks prior. So that's what happened. Not a star-studded card in my mind. I don't know a ton of the fighters that fought in this card. But those are some fights. If you want to watch back, check them out. Then we have um, the PFL going down Friday. It's Wednesday afternoon right now. This will be out Thursday on video. Be putting it out for uh, audio podcast tonight. But that will be on ESPN Plus at 4.30 Pacific. The main card on ESPN at 7. Um, this will be, I believe, the featherweight women's and heavyweight men's going for the um, PFL championship. We have Dennis Goldslav taking on Jordan Heiderman. Probably the, the biggest name in um, the PFL besides ex-UFC fighter Shane Burgos is Larissa Pacheco. She's taking on Olena Kolisnik. I think we should see a spectacular finish or submission by Pacheco in this fight. And then Renan Ferreira versus Maurice Green. Um, Green uh, taking a, some bad fights in the regular season. Got enough points to get into the postseason here. Taking on a very, very tough Renan Ferreira. So it'll be interesting to see if his all that work with John Jones has really paid off. As there was a John Jones training partner in the Contender Series that uh, definitely had a clunker. So stay tuned. We'll see how that goes down with the PFL. We'll recap that next week. But let's talk UFC Fight Night Vegas 78. Uh, Bows and TKOs went 4-3 and three on the week. You know, not a lot of fights picked on this card as a, it wasn't a stacked card. But we're plus 20 so far. On episode 11, 65 and 45, I'll be posting my picks every Friday at Bows and TKO's Instagram and Twitter and threads, I believe, my own threads, if anyone's even on threads anymore. Um, but really excited for the picks for this week for UFC 292. Here in Montana, you don't have legal bets on the app, so I have to go to a casino or something to make some sports bets. But regardless, lots of finishes, lots of carnage in this card, although not a lot of big names. And the um, card, the UFC card this weekend tied the record for the most first round finishes. So again, lots of action, lots of carnage. Some fights we did not break down. Luana Santos had a round one TKO victory in her UFC debut. Uh, made slight work uh, in her fight. Uh, the, the man who's doing the quick week turnaround we had Damon Blackshear with that twister submission victory. Only the third person ever to get a twister submission. He got performance night 50 Gs, and he is right back at it to try to get another one on a pay-per-view main card. Talk about your stock skyrocketing. We had Jacqueline Amarim with a round one TKO. Um, that was a very good performance by her. And then UFC debuter Isaac Dolgarian with a round one TKO in his UFC debut. And because of the lack of knowledge to his opponent, we didn't break down this fight. But T-Rex, Terrence McKinney got the round one TKO all in the prelims. 
So if you wanted to watch some, some carnage, you wanted to watch some knockouts, that was the card to do so. And if you're like me and didn't catch it live, ESPN Plus, if you're a subscriber, you could go back and check it out. But the fights that we did break down were kicking it off in the prelims. We had Marcus McGee with a round one knockout over JP Buys. Performance of the night. Ben, oh man, is Marcus coming on the scene. Uh, only his second UFC fight from the MMA lab. Um, you know, the Sugar Show, Tim Welch and those guys talk about uh, training with Marcus at the MMA lab and all the things that he brings to the table. It seems like he has really good um, athlete mindset, really calm, cool, collected, very, you know, gratitude forward. I love that about him, but he fights viciously and boy, did he put on a show and showed that he is levels above JP and I cannot wait to see what the UFC does with him next, but it only took Marcus seven total and significant strikes, obviously had that knockdown and JP only landed four total and significant strikes and he was 0 for one in takedown attempts. So now Marcus extends his winning streak to four, two of those in the UFC. JP extends his losing streak to four and has not um, got a win in the UFC since his contender series victory where he earned that UFC contract. So it's going to be back, back to the drawing board for JP. Now, where does Marcus go? I mean, they could definitely, you know, put him up in the rankings, but I think a matchup with Ultimate Fighter alum Ricky Tarsios. Could you imagine the maniac, tricky Ricky? Um, I would love to see that. And if JP is still somehow in the UFC, I'd expect him to take some time off, improve his craft after that losing streak. You know, he has been training with Aljamain Sterling and that team. So, um, you know, got, got to perfect your craft, work on that defense. Um, working on that footwork and head movement. But if he does fight in the UFC, how about Luan Lacerda? That would be the fight to make. And then this man right here, Khalil Roundtree Jr. with a round one knockout over Chris Dacus. Performance of the night, 50 Gs. And this man just looks like a problem. He has shredded the power in his kicks and his strikes um, he just looks like a problem in this division. And Chris Dock is trying to make his uh, light heavyweight debut, coming from heavyweight after taking some L's in the heavyweight division. It just it wasn't going to be his night. Khalil has traveled the world. He's perfected his craft, and he's really taking uh, MMA 100%. And he's going to be a problem in the top 15. And I'm excited to see him fight up in the rankings as he's defended his position the past few fights. Uh, Khalil landed 16 total strikes and significant with the knockdown compared to Chris's 14 total strikes, eight of those significant, and he was 0 for 1 in takedown attempts. So Khalil extends his winning streak to four. He is 4 and 1 since 2021. He moves up two spots in the rankings to number 11. And Chris extends his losing streak to four. He has not won since September of 2021. So give me Khalil and Azamat Merzakhanov. Um, Azamat was actually ahead of Khalil in the rankings until Khalil just went up to number 11. Um, I think that would be the fight to make. Great styles. Both guys uh, rolling right now. And Chris, I think he might still have a UFC potential at light heavyweight. But um, he may not be in the UFC after this fighting skid. If he is, I would assume he stays in light heavyweight. Um, and he could fight someone like Nikolai Nigamaranu. That would make sense. Um, 
as I don't think the UFC would want to see him back at the heavyweight division. And then we got Cub Swanson, the OG, with a unanimous decision victory over Hakeem Dawudu. And I personally had Hakeem winning this fight. It was a very close fight, back and forth affair. But I had Hakeem winning round one and round two. I really do think round two, you know, I only watched the fight once. You could watch it back and probably get different takeaways each time. So round two really was up in the air. But then I did have Hakeem winning round three. So for sure round one and round three, you only need to win two rounds. I think he deserved that win. And even Cub was a little bit surprised. Um, you could tell in the post-fight interview, he, he was honest about his opinion on the fight. said, you know, I've taken some shots. Maybe I got to go watch the film back. It reminded me a little bit of the Sean O'Malley-Pewter Yan fight. Um, but either way, Cub Swanson at this stage in his career is still putting on a show. Um, he did mix in a little bit of grappling, but mostly stayed on the feet um, and, and wanted to, to trade with Hakeem. Round three, right at the end of the, the round, you know, that maybe could have stole it from the judges. He came out with a barrage of strikes because he thought he was down on the scorecards. Um, but either way, high quality fight. I assumed this could be a fight of the night potential. Very, very close fight. Cub moves on. Brutal loss for Hakeem at this point in his career. Um, statistically, Cub landed 107 total strikes, 77 of which were significant. He did have one takedown in two attempts, and Hakeem landed 129 total strikes, 95 of those significant with the reversal. So Hakeem higher on both strike volumes. Again, I would assume round one and round three, he had those one on volume as well. So Cub starts a new winning streak. Um, obviously returning to featherweight, I would assume he stays there. He is uh, two and two since 2021. And Hakeem extends his losing streak to two. He is now 1-3 since 2021. He's tried to go back in the gym, take some time off, perfect his craft. Hasn't been super active. You lose to an older veteran. You're right back into the mix. Now you're going to be fighting young up-and-comers. It's a brutal, brutal career, a brutal sport. And that's just a tough way for Hakeem to lose. You know, I'm a massive Cub Swanson fan, like I've said. But you just got to feel for a guy that's put so much work and effort in. He deserved that victory. And now it's back to the drawing board. And maybe I would expect to see him back in the octagon soon to try to get another win under his belt. So who could these guys match up with next? Well, I take back what I said last week. I'd rather have Cub fight Billy Quarantillo than the fight that I had said Billy was ready for. Now that Cub's there, could you imagine the back and forth uh, of those two fighters and, and seeing what ha Cub has left in the tank? Cub was definitely emotional, had his family there at the apex, which... Man, it's a damn shame for some of these guys to be fighting in the apex with hardly any fans, including Cub Swanson, Vicente Luque, and RDA, legends of the sport. But um, I have no idea how he, you know, how he's going to feel if he wants to get right back into camp. He talked about this being the hardest camp, the hardest weight cut of his career. He may want to take some time off. But if the Billy Q fight could happen, golly, what a matchup that would be. And for Keem. How about a fight with Pat Sabatini? Again, I think he might want a quick bounce back fight. I think that would be the perfect opponent for him and a good opportunity for Pat as well. And then we had the main event, which Vicente Luque got the unanimous decision over Rafael Dos Anjos. And clearly there is a size discrepancy as RDA typically fights at lightweight. Moving up a division, Vicente had the, the, the size, the body length, 
was up against uh, the cage with him numerous times and just really bullying him around. Um, but the storyline was Vicente in his last fight took a lot of damage, had to take a lot of time off and get doctor clearance for this fight. Supposedly there were doctors there cage side if he was taking bad shots, there potential to even end the fight early. And Vicente in his post-fight interview talked about it took him a while to, you know, be able to feel comfortable taking damage, taking shots, and really letting loose with the strikes. So if you put that in perspective, yes, he's a little bit bigger at this weight class than RDA, but RDA is a legend, just fought Rafael Faziv, uh, you know, t t tit for tat through a whole five-round affair. Vicente Luque has highlights and highlights for days, has shown he can hang with the best. He is only 31 years old, is just scratching the surface on his prime, is, has been training with the new team for quite a while. I expect a ton of great things from Vicente. We even saw, in him, saw him mix in some grappling, and I expected RDA to be the one that would initiate the grappling and try to get control, which he did up against the cage, but every time Vicente would use his size, turn him around, get the underhooks, push on him, and wear on him. So, I, you know, my takeaways here... RDA can still fight at a high level. This is probably not the weight class for him. So maybe his career will be at a crossroads if he doesn't want to make it back to light heavy or lightweight because that's a brutal weight cut. And for Vicente, he is right back where we expect him to. He's building that confidence back, and I cannot wait to see what is next. But both guys, great fight. Um, I enjoyed watching it. It was some high-quality uh, striking back and forth for five rounds. When we break down the stats, Vicente landed 138 total strikes. 72 of those were significant. He had eight takedowns in 11 attempts. If he wanted a takedown, he got it. Again, that was the biggest shocker in this fight and shows how he's, you know, rounding out his game, uh, training with Kill Cliff. You know, there's a lot of grapplers in there. You have to add that to your game. This is going to make Vicente that much more dangerous. An RDA landed 94 total strikes, 66 of those were significant. He did have a submission attempt and two takedowns, although in seven attempts, so he really struggled with the takedowns, which I did not expect to be a problem for RDA. So Vicente ends his two-fight losing streak. He starts a new winning streak and stays at number 10 in the rankings. RDA does start a new losing streak at welterweight. So it's going to be interesting to see what he does, especially with the size differential and the, the, the strength differential in that division. He does move down one spot in the lightweight rankings to number 10. So the UFC guys still have him at the lightweight. It'll be interesting to see where he goes in his, in his next fight and what division he wants to deal with. So what's next? Well, I think... Um, Vicente Luque's got a ton of potential. I would like to see him with a high-quality box office uh, matchup. So I said maybe Kevin Holland, maybe Jack Della Maddalena. I would assume if Jack was going to fight Sean Brady, that would have been announced. It seems like it is going to be Jack and Kevin, though, so maybe all of those have been removed. So let's look real quick at the rankings. See if I can think of a, a good opponent quickly here. So if Kevin, Hall uh, Kevin Holland and Jack are actually fighting, maybe we could get the Sean Brady fight. That could be a great fight. Jeff Neal back from injury. Um, those are two guys that's fighting up. Let's see if he's fought them before. I don't think he has. Definitely not Brady. Maybe Neal. Actually, he did lose to Neal. That was the fight he got pieced up on. 
So that won't be happening. But yeah, well, how about Sean Brady? That's the fight um, to make, depending on how long Sean's out and how quickly Vicente wants to get back in the octagon. And for RDA, I do think, uh, you know, it depends what weight class. But I think a scrap with Gunnar Nelson would be great. Another OG of the sport, another veteran that's been there, done that. Uh, kind of a legacy fight. Um, that's the fight to make. But again, lots of carnage in this Apex card. Uh, wasn't star-studded by any means. The main event, obviously, some big names. Cub Swanson, Khalil, um, you know, just because um, I know a lot about the MMA Lab guys. Marcus McGee, most of you guys probably don't know who he is. Uh, but it, it turned out well. Sometimes these Apex cards can be sneaky. And um, there was some great performances and some good young fighters that delivered. But enough of that nonsense. Let's talk UFC 292. We got the prelims on Saturday, ESPN 2 uh, and ESPN at 5 p.m. Pacific. The early prelims will be at 3.30, and we have the ultimate fighter finale on the prelims. There are some early prelims that will be ESPN Plus and Fight Pass before that, and we are kicking off in the early prelims because this card is stacked. We got Andrea KGB Lee, the 34-year-old fighter with a 13-7 record, and the number 13 next to her name, taking on Natalia Silva, the 26-year-old fighter with a 15-5-1 record. Now, this is going to be a really fun fight as Natalia Silva has looked amazing in her three UFC fights. She is now already getting a top 15 opponent. She's look, you know, Andrea's kind of looking to get back on track after some very close decision losses. So she's going to want this more than ever. She's going to want to prove that she belongs in the top 15. So I expect this to be a fantastic performance. Uh, make sure to tune in on these early prelims. When we break it down, Angela has a Kaioshin uh, style, a black belt in Kaioshin karate, a brown belt in judo and BJJ. She was an amateur kickboxing and Golden Gloves champion. She's on a two-fight losing streak, both those one split decision, one unanimous, very close fights. And she has not won since November of 2021. She is an LFA alum and former champion and an Invicta alum. And she does have some reach advantage here, four and a half inches uh, versus Natalia. Now, Natalia's rolling. She's been steamrolling everyone. She's on a nine-fight winning streak. She's a jungle fight alum, and seven of her 15 wins are via submission. I think this fight is going to be at such an insane pace. It's going to be so much fun that you won't be able to blink the transitions, the grappling, the striking. I do believe this fight's going to go everywhere. I would assume Silva's going to have the speed advantage, although Andrea's quick, Natalia is lightning fast. I think Andrea may have the power advantage, though, if she can, if she can make it happen. I would assume the game plan for Andrea is try and use that reach to keep Silva at distance. But Silva, she's used to that. She has those crazy flurries of power combos that allows her to close the distance, look for leg trips, look to get her opponent up the against the cage and look to get that takedown so that she can let her uh, jujitsu jiu shine. I think it's going to be whatever woman really has the success with grappling is going to get a lot of dividends paid off in this fight. I do expect this fight to be mostly on the feet in a kickboxing showdown. I've really gone back and forth in this fight, 
but Natalia Silva has looked undeniable. And as great as the KGB is, I am picking Natalia Silva, but I am not putting her on a parlay if possible. And then we have Andre Petrowski, the 32-year-old fighter with a 9-2 record, taking on Gerald GM3 Mearshart, the 35-year-old fighter with a 35-16 record. Now, honestly, this is another exciting fight. Petrowski has shown improvement on his winning streak and is getting a veteran who has fought a ton of high-level fighters. When we break it down, Andre definitely has a wrestling style. He has a brown belt in BJJ. He is an ultimate fighter and LFA alum. He's on a four-fight winning streak all in the UFC. And Gerald, he's got a BJJ kickboxing and taekwondo style. He trains at a Kill Cliff FC with a bunch of dogs. He has a black belt in VJJ. And he's got a good little resume. He has the most submission wins in UFC middleweight division history with nine. He has the second most finishes in UFC middleweight division history with 10. He has the highest finishes per win percentage in UFC history. Nine out of his 10 wins have been finishes. He's got the third most submission attempts in UFC middleweight division history with 16. And he's been a little bit of everywhere. He's a king of the cage, Titan FC, an RFA alum. He was a former RFA champion. And he does have a four and a half inch reach advantage. I honestly don't believe either of these men have like amazing striking. Solid striking, but nothing to write home about. And I think it's going to be a fun back and forth affair. Andre's going to have the true wrestling advantage. When I say grappling, that's more up against the cage, leading into jiu-jitsu. Wrestling, I'm going to give the advantage to Andre. But GM3 is a submission wizard. It's going to make for an interesting fight. I do think uh, Gerald's probably got more technical striking, but Andre does have the power advantage. Andre is definitely on a roll and confident right now, where I'm not too sure how um, Gerald feels with, with his last few fights. I mean, when we look at Gerald, and he's done some fairy grappling. Let's see if I could pull up his sure dog, because I think he even grappled Petrowski for the Fury Pro. So, uh, Gerald has lost to Joe Pfeiffer. Joe Pfeiffer cleaned the mat with him at the Fury Pro and in the UFC Octagon. Let's see. Nope, he did not grapple Andre. Um, he did defeat Bruno, although he was getting boxed up. He caught him in a guillotine. He's done that a lot in his career. He lost to Christoph Jotko before he got cut by the UFC and then had a win over Dustin Stoltzfus. So, you know, not the most cruisy last few fights to build your confidence. So confidence can go a long ways, and Andre is full of it now. He's been talking about Bo Nickel won't take his fights. Nobody wants him, but he's been calling for it. Um, so it is going to be really interesting. I do think Andre over three rounds is going to have the advantage. So I am taking Andre Petrowski. I am marking him on that parlay. We marking that is down and we getting that bread. Moving on in the actual prelims. We got the ultimate fighter finale fights. We got Brad Superman Katona, the 31 year old with a 12 and two record taking on Cody 
the renegade Gibson, who's 35 years old with a 19-8 and record. Sometimes seeing these guys' resume and accolades and seeing them fight for a long time, something like the idea that Brad Katona is only 31 years old really kind of just blows my mind because he's just in his prime. Now, this is a you know a lot of big things happening in this fight. We talked about the drama in the tough house, but Brad is trying to be the first and maybe only ever only two-time Ultimate Fighter champion, as this is the first season they've had veterans come back. And I'm pretty sure that this is going to be the case. Although I'm still upset about the highway robbery and the Tamor fight, Tamor clearly beat Brad Katona. I think Brad is a lot better than um, Cody Gibson. Cody has done well, but he's battling that knee injury. Brad's also coming off a very damaging semifinal fight. I have no idea what the time frame is from those fights to this card, though. I would assume it's been at least a month. Um, it may be more, so I'm just going under the assumption it's a month where I think these will both, you know, have some effects for the fighters in this fight. But it may have been multiple months, and who knows, maybe Cody's completely fine. But when we break it down, Brad has a black belt in BJJ and uh, Kodoshan Karate. He was the Ultimate Fighter 27 champion. He is a brave alum and former champ. He also had a, su a successful title defense. He's on a four-fight winning streak. All of those were in Brave post-UFC uh, uh, run. And he was 1-2 and two in the UFC, including a loss to Hunter Azure, another 406 stud who uh, suffered a round one defeat in the fighter house. I was hoping we could see that matchup, <clears throat> rematch. Cody has a brown belt in BJJ. He's a Titan FC, Eagle FC, and LFA alum. He is on a one-fight winning streak and is 3-1 since 2021. Seven of his 19 wins are via knockout. Four of his eight losses are via submission. Again, the, the drama in episode 12, if you've tuned in, and if you haven't, I recommend tuning in if you're going to watch, has kind of built the, the excitement for this fight. I do think that uh, we are going to get some good striking back and forth. But I do ultimately think Brad is going to look to get the takedown, especially after all that smack Cody's taken. And Brad seemed pretty calm, cool, and collected about the trash talk. But I do think there is a little bit of emotion in here for Cody. I'm not trying to say Cody is not a quality fighter. I was very impressed with his fights in the fighter house. Um, I just think Brad showed the damage he could take, the gas tank he has. And over the course of three rounds, that is going to be brutal for anyone to put up with. And I don't, uh, I'm not betting on Cody doing that. So I am taking Brad to Katona. Uh, I am picking him, but avoiding him on a parlay if possible. And then for the other championship, we have Austin Thud Hubbard, the 31 year old fighter with a 13 and 6 record, taking on Kurt Hollibaugh, the 36 year old fighter with a 17 and 7 record. Now, I'm not really surprised either of these guys made the finale, to be honest. Especially Austin Hubbard. He was my pick once I saw who the veterans were. Um, he is just now entering his prime at 31 years old. I think Hubbard took out the better competition in the house, which helped uh, Kurt get to the championship. And, um, you know, Austin's coming off a high-quality win. I think he realized that you have to do multiple fights back-to-back -back and was trying to 
you know, protect himself a little bit, which is definitely strategy for the ultimate fighter. And Kurt, man, he is just a tough son of a gun, blue collar, tough as nails, well-rounded, and knows that this is his last chance, especially at 36 years old. So he's going to give it everything he's got, and I'm sure he's going to take some risks. Now, Austin trains out at Elevation Fight Team. He's a purple belt in BJJ. He is an LFA alum and former champion. He is on a two-fight winning streak since being released from the UFC. And he was 3-4 and four in the UFC. Kurt is an orthodox fighter. He has a black belt in BJJ. He is a Strike Force, Dana White Contender Series, and Titan FC alum. He was a Titan FC former champion. He's on a two-fight winning streak uh, since he was out of the UFC. And he was 0-1-3 in the UFC against very high-quality opponents. And Rayoni Barcelos, Shane Burgos, and Tiago Moises. So you can't technically knock him, although that's not a very pristine record. Nine of his 17 wins are via submission and seven via knockout. So 16 of his 17 fights via finish. Now that's that's big time. I think Austin is going to come out and looking to get a finish early, though. I think he will trade shots. Get the fight up against the cage. Look for a takedown. Get that grounded pound going. And I do think he's going to have the speed and grappling advantage. But you can't get overzealous. Get get yourself into a bad area where um, Kurt can get a submission. But I wouldn't be surprised if Kurt came out like a, a firecracker either. Like I said, at 36 years old, this is your last shot. He's even talked about that in some of the media that I saw on Instagram today and this week. So it should make for a dandy. But I am taking Austin Hubbard. I am putting him on that parlay. We marking that ish down and we getting that bread. <laughs> Moving on. Oh boy, do I love me some RoboCop fights. We got Gregory RoboCop Rodriguez, 31 years old with a 13 and five record, taking on Dennis Tulin, who's 35 years old with a 11 and seven record. Now, I'm excited to see RoboCop back in the octagon. He's taken on Dennis, who is in desperate, desperate need of a UFC victory. So that will always typically make for a banger of a fight. And if you've seen RoboCop, they've all been major time, major scraps that are box office. So Gregory trains out of Killcliffe FC. He has a black belt in BJJ. Three of his last five fights have been fight of the night or performance of the night. He's put on shows, and I expect another one this weekend. He is a Jungle Fight, Dana White Contender Series, and LFA alum. He was an LFA former champ. Nine of his 14 wins are via knockout. Three of his five losses are also via knockout. So to knockout or be knocked out. Dennis is on a one-fight losing streak. He is only one and two in the UFC. He is an M1 and Brave alum. Nine of his 10 wins are via knockout and four of his seven losses are via submission. Again, I do not expect this to go to the scorecards. Both men possess some serious power. They're willing to take shots to deliver the shots. So let's see who can stand their ground with a nickname like RoboCop. You, you should know what to expect. I am taking Gregory. I expect an early knockout. We putting him on that parlay. We marking that ish down. And we get in that bread. 
Moving on, we have Chris, the All-American Wideman. 39 years old with a 15-6 and record, taking on Brad Tavares, the 35-year-old fighter with a 19-9 and record. Now, this is really just a classic OG fight. It's a win-win for both men. Uh, you know, having each other as a, as a victory on their resumes is going to be great to look back at. What's really shocking for me is that both men haven't squared up before in the first place. They're very well-rounded fighters. They aren't shy to get to the grappling. And um, the big storyline is Chris recovering from that nasty, nasty leg break, which was a recovery from multiple years off. So at 39 years old, there's a lot of question marks in this fight. Now, Chris has a wrestling background. He has a black belt in BJJ. He has a D1 wrestling background out of Nassau Community College in Hofstra. He got gold in the 09 ADCC North American Championships. He is a former middleweight champion with three successful title defenses. He defeated Anderson Silva, the, the, the biggest moment of his career. He's a Ring of Combat alum. He's on a one-fight losing streak, which was the leg break. He is 1-3 since 2018, so again, hasn't been super active, battled injuries. He has not won since uh, August of 2020. Six of his 15 wins are via knockout. All six of his losses via knockout, so to knock out or be knocked out. And he does have a four-inch reach advantage. Now, Brad trains out of Extreme Couture. He is an Ultimate Fighter alum. He has the most decision wins in UFC middleweight division history with 12. He has the most unanimous decision wins in UFC middleweight division history with 9. He's tried with, with Christoph Jocko for the most split decision wins in UFC middleweight history with 3. He has the second most fight time in UFC middleweight division history with over 4 hours and 41 minutes. He's on a 2 fight losing streak. And he has not won since July of 2021. But I saw him in person at T-Mobile against Drikus Duplessis. He battled and almost won. I had Drikus on a parlay and was really nervous. Um, and look at what Drikus has been doing since. Again, Brad is only, you know, or is still in his prime at 35 years old. And although he has not won since July of 2021, he does have a lot of power in his hands. Um, but he's also, four of his eight losses are via knockout. This fight really is a question mark, though, because what can we expect from Weidman? We haven't seen him since August of 2020, since he snapped his leg against Uriah Hall. He can wrestle. Of course he can. He has good jiu-jitsu. But where is his mentality? He talked about wanting to throw the high, hardest leg kick of his life to build that confidence back. Uh, I'm not too sure how I feel about that. But... If he is going to be able to take the shots and have the endurance needed, this is going to be one hell of a fight. But Brad is going to be too much in my mind over the course of three rounds. Again, he's still only 35 years old. He's going to keep coming, come at, come at you with everything he's got. The best way for victory for Chris is to somehow get a takedown and get control time to tire out Brad early. I do not think that'll be the case. I am picking Brad Tavares, but I am avoiding him on a parlay if possible. 
And that sets us up for this stacked main card with a ton of bantamweight fights on the line. Starting with Marlon Chito Vera, the 30-year-old with a 28-1 record and the number six next to his name, taking on Pedro the Young Punisher Munoz. 36 years old with a 20-7 and record and the number 10 next to his name. Now this is a fun fight. We really get to see Cheeto try to get back on track as he could potentially be in a title fight with the victory here. Sean O'Malley said if he wins, he's calling for it. He wants that fight back. So Cheeto is a win away from the title fight he's been seeking out. And for Pedro, he showed in April that he can still fight at a high level. I think he's going to try to come and out-volume Cheeto in three rounds as Cheeto showed that he's a slow starter. I think he's in Cheeto's face the whole fight and really shows people what he's made of. Breaking it down, Marlon trains out of RVCA. He has a black belt in BJJ. Four of his last fights have been fight of the night or performance of the night. He's been putting on shows um, since the Sugar Show fight. He has the most finishes in the UFC bantamweight division history with 10. He's tied for the most knockdowns in UFC bantamweight division history with 10. He has the most submission attempts in UFC bantamweight division history with 16. He is an Ultimate Fighter Latin America alum. He's on a one-fight losing streak, but was on a four-fight winning streak. Eight of his 20 wins are via knockout and eight via submission. So 16 of his 20 wins are via finish. So very nice. And he has a six-inch reach advantage and a four-inch leg reach advantage. Now, Pedro trains out of ATT. He has a black belt in BJJ a brown belt in judo. He has the most bouts in UFC bantamweight division history with 19. He's tied with Sugar Sean for the second most post-fight bonuses in UFC bantamweight division history with seven. <clears throat> he has a jungle fight, an RFA alum. He was also an RFA former champion. He's on a one-fight winning streak and has two 2-1 two since 2021 and eight of his 20 wins are via submission. Marlon has proved over and over how durable he is. I think he's going to have too much power for Pedro at this point in his career. The advantage for Pedro is I do think he's going to bring the volume and the fight to Cheeto, and we've seen how slow Cheeto started. He's been frozen in the octagon in his last fight. His corner was trying to get him to fight. He wasn't throwing the strikes, so you never know. I don't doubt his work ethic. I don't doubt his conditioning. I just think he needs to let loose a little bit and let it go in there. If he doesn't and we see the typical Cheeto, I do think Pedro can still rounds for him and have an opportunity to steal the decision. Pedro has not been finished in his pro career, um, so that's going to be a tall order for Cheeto. So I do expect this to go to decision, but I am taking Marlon Farah, but I'm avoiding this on a parlay if possible. Then we have the short notice fill-in Mario Batista, the 30-year-old fighter with a 12-2 record, taking on Damon the Monster Blackshear, 29 years old with a 14-5 record. Now this is a short notice turnaround fight. Again, a week after pulling out the Twister victory, he is now in Boston, Massachusetts in prime time television on the pay-per-view main card. 
I do think stylistically this fight is going to make for a better fight as both men are just now entering their primes. They're very well-rounded fighters. They're great strikers and grapplers as we saw with the submission victories that Mario's been pulling off and the twister by Blackshear. Now, Mario trains out of the MMA lab. He's on a four-fight winning streak. He has a brown belt in BJJ. He's an LFA alum, and six of his 12 wins are via knockout. DeMond trains out of Jackson Wink MMA. He's on a two-fight winning streak. He is 2-1-1 one one in the UFC. He's a Cage, for Cage Fury, Bellator, and Titan FC alum. Nine of his 14 wins are via submission. This is a tall order for Blackshear on the quick turnaround. He's definitely taking a step up in competition. He's going to have to try to recover, maybe not from his fight because he dominated it, but that fight camp he put in to who knows what he did before this fight was announced. You know, maybe eating some pizza, gaining some weight. It's just going to be really hard on the body, and the weight cut is not going to be easy. I don't see Blackshear being able to outstrike Mario, um, and I really don't expect him to be able to have success taking him down and submitting Batista. Maybe he could get a takedown. I doubt that either guy holds each other down, but Mario's really looked good on the ground of late. I think Mario's honestly looked phenomenal. I think he puts out another great display and itches closer to the top 15 in the bantamweight division. For that reason, I'm taking Mario. I'm putting him on that parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Great fight, though. Really excited to see how that, that shows up. I do think the advantage is to Mario without having to do the short turnaround like DeMond does. And another short notice fill-in. We have Ian Machado, the future Gary, 25 years old, with an undefeated 12-0 record, taking on Neil, the Haitian succession, Magni, 36 years old, with a 28-11 record. This is the fight that uh, Ian asked for. He talked to Ariel Hawani and Dana about his like six-fight plan or whatever the hell he's talking about. He wants to fight all the top people in the division so no one could doubt him for a title shot. But uh, this is a different fight than the Jeff Neal fight, and the only way Neal is going to have a path to victory is make this a classic Magni fight. Um, Ian's going to look to get his kicks going. Neal's going to look to make this fight dirty. Close distance, get it up to the gifts of cage, get this fight to the canvas. And Jeff Neal is known as more of a striker, where Neil Magny likes to have the fight on the canvas, and we have not seen Neil or uh, Ian have to fight that kind of opponent. So it, it definitely is intriguing. Now, Ian has a boxing and judo background. He trains at a Kill, Cl Kill Cliff FC with a bunch of killers. Used to be Sanford. He has a black belt in judo. He is a Cage Warriors alum and former champion. He's obviously undefeated on that 12-fight winning streak, five of which are in the UFC, and seven of his 12 wins are via knockout. Now, Neil trains at an elevation fight team. He has a brown belt in BJJ. He's an Ultimate Fighter alum. He has the most wins in UFC welterweight division history with 21. Trying to add to that. He has the longest fight time in UFC welterweight division history with over 6 hours and 17 minutes 
That's insane at only 36 years old. He's tied with Matt Brown for the most bouts in UFC welterweight division history with 30. So he's going to be taking the lead. He's tied for the most wins in a calendar year at five. The most decision wins in UFC history with 14. He's tied for the most unanimous decision wins in welterweight history with 10. He has the most decision bouts in welterweight history at 16. He also has the most split decision wins in UFC welterweight division history with four. He has the second most strikes landed in UFC welterweight division history with over 1,329. He's on a one fight winning streak and he is three and two since 2022. Six of his 10 losses are via submission. And he actually has some reach advantage here. He has a five and a half inch reach advantage and a three inch leg reach advantage. Now, Ian has not fought a fighter who likes to grapple and not just kickbox. Again, that's going to be the, the, the learning lesson for us in this fight is how does he fare? I pretty positive Neil's uh, game plan on short notice and two months removed from his last fight is going to be in, look to close the distance, grapple, make it dirty and really grind it out. I am going to take Ian Gary, but I think that this is going to show that he is not arms and legs above everyone. He is only 25 years old. He has not fought an opponent like Neil. I think that he's going to learn that he's got some things to work on. And I think this is a much closer fight than people give credit for. But I am taking the future. I am avoiding him on a parlay if possible. Don't be shocked if the Haitian sensation shocks the world. <laughs> And then we have the co-main event of the evening, 292 this Saturday, Zhang Magnum Wele, the 34-year-old fighter with a 23-3 record, taking on Amanda Lemos, the 36-year-old fighter with a 13-2-1 record and the number five next to her name. Now, this fight is going to be potentially a woman's fight of the year candidate. The striking ability that both women have, the grappling, not necessarily all jiu-jitsu, but the up against the cage, the clinching grappling ability, and the power strikes. I don't think we could see two women in the most exciting division in strawweight go at it that has the, the potential to knock an, any woman out any given night. Now, Lamosh is known as a power striker first. But nobody is better than Zhang Weilei and where she's at today. Although she's lost to Rose Namajunas twice, she has cleaned the division out. I expect this fight to actually stay as a kickboxing showdown. But if either woman looks for takedowns, I think Lemos will definitely have the jiu-jitsu advantage. And we've seen the um, weakness as Rose used to take uh, Weilei down. Maybe Lemos looks to do that as well. When we break it down, Zong has a San, uh, Sanda kickboxing and Muay Thai style. She has a brown belt in BJJ. She's the first ever Chinese champion in UFC history. Four of her last six fights have been performance of the night or fight of the night. She loves those bonuses. She had the 2020 fight of the year against Joanna Young Jacek, the best woman's fight I've ever seen, and we may be in for another. She was the 2022 Female Fighter of the Year, and she is on a two-fight winning streak. Her only loss in the UFC was against Rose Namajunas, and 11 of her 23 wins are via knockout. 
eight via submission. So these are unreal numbers in the women's UFC. 19 of her 23 wins via finish. Now Amanda is tied for the most finishes in UFC women's strawweight division history with five. She is tied for the most knockouts in UFC women's strawweight division history with three. She is a jungle fight alum and former champion with two successful title defenses. And eight of her 13 wins are via knockout. I don't think a lot of people know that much, much about Amanda Lemos versus uh, Wei Lei. And I don't think a lot of people are giving the credit to Lemos. I do think Zeng is going to be too, uh, too much for Lemos and come up with ridiculous combinations and volume where I don't see uh, Amanda being able to match that volume over the course of five rounds. There is a potential where uh, Lemos gets a finish. There is a potential of, of Wei Lei getting the finish as well. I am not expecting that in this fight, although they're, they're finish finishing artists. If Lamosh can find an opening and land some big power shots, though, anything is possible. I'm just not putting my money on that. I cannot wait to see the MMA that these women pro provide. It's like a, a men's flyweight division. They're going to be going around like Super Saiyans and Dragon Ball Z. I can't wait. I am taking the Magnum, but I am not putting this on a parlay if possible. And then we have the main event. We got Aljamain Funkmaster Sterling, the 34-year-old fighter with a 23-3 record, taking on Sugar Sean O'Malley, the 28-year-old fighter with a 16-1 record and the number two next to his name. Now we're getting a clash of, files, a clash of styles in this main event. This is most likely Sterling's final bantamweight fight. Unless the Sugar Show shocks the world, I would imagine he wants an automatic rematch. Aljo is known as the backpack. He has a grappling heavy style and is a really crazy unorthodox striker. That's why he's known as the Funk Master. And then the Sugar Show is a kickboxing sniper. He's put out almost a performance of the night every time he stepped foot into the UFC octagon. And he puts on a show and is probably one of the most popular fighters on the UFC roster. And I'm actually, you know, one of his biggest fans. I've been an OG since he's been a, a contender series fighter all through the UFC. And my reason is simple. He came from the 406. He's a Montana alum. Anyone that comes from my two hometown states, Wyoming and Montana, I'm following their path because there is so few uh, athletes that turn professional from those states. And we got to support uh, uh, the hometown kids. And uh, it's just wild to think that the Shooka Show is actually fighting for the title. I knew that he would be good once he started talking about on his on his podcast, the, the Timbo Sugar Show, Yes, I'm a Jobin, that uh, the team that he surrounded himself with, whether it's Dan Gardner on his nutrition and sleep, whether it's Tran uh, Keo uh, working on him with his grappling and jujitsu, whether it's Tim Welch, who's been his mentor and really has helped uh, Sean get to where he is today, or whether it's uh, some of the guys that help him in managing. I forget his name, but he's uh, um, the owner of Sanibal or one of the owners of Sanibal. To put yourself around the best, you can be the best. You're the sum of the uh, five to ten people you surround yourself, and I've been super impressed of the maturity and the growth of the Sugar Show and all the adversity he dealt with with the USADA issue uh, with the testing and the layoff, the injuries and recoveries that he's had. The moment is finally here. 
but let's break it down. Aljamain trains out of the Sierra Longo fight team. He has a black belt in BJJ. He has a D2 wrestling background out of Morrisville State College in Cortland, where he was a two-time All-American. He has three successful title defenses. He has the most consecutive title defenses in UFC bantamweight division history. To stay on top of the bantamweight and lightweight division is straight chaos, as there are killers lurking all through the top 15. But in the bantamweight division, the top 30 are, are all potential contenders. And to defend your title like that is, is, is insanely difficult. And I don't think Aljamain gets enough credit. He is debatably one of the best bantamweights at the UFC bantamweight champions that the UFC has ever seen. And uh, we have to give credit where credit's due. And in the media this week, Tim and Sean have definitely uh, given Aljo his flowers. But his resume continues. He has the most wins in the UFC bantamweight division history with 14. He has the longest win streak in UFC bantamweight division history with 9. He has the longest total fight time in UFC bantamweight division history with over 3 hours and 49 minutes. He also has the most control time in UFC bantamweight division history with over an hour. He has the most strikes landed in UFC bantamweight division history with over 1,646. He's a Ring of Combat alum uh, and champion. He had three successful title defenses at Ring of Combat. He was also a Cage Fury alum and former champion. He has dominated every promotion everywhere he's gone. He had the 2018 submission of the year against Cody Stamen. The 2020 submission of the year against Corey Sanhagen, and he was the 2022 comeback fighter of the year with the win against Peter Yan, where I really think Aljamain became a champion. He was coming out with insane volume and gassed himself out before the illegal knee and disqualification that led to his victory. And I think being able to watch that tape, understand how to hold yourself over five rounds and really be able to manage a fight when you're mixing in that striking and grappling has boosted his stock and has really helped him for fights like this against the Sugar Show. He is on a nine-fight winning streak. He is calling for a victory here and moving up to featherweight to fight the pound-for-pound pound meanest man on the roster, Alexander the Great Volkanovsky. When we look at Sean, he trains out of the MMA lab in Phoenix. He has a brown belt in BJJ. Seven of his ten fights have been performance of the night or fight of the night. Again, he shows up, he shows out. That's why he's a fan favorite. He's on a four-fight winning streak. He had the no contest in between with Pedro Munoz, but I think he was well on his way to winning that. Eleven of his 16 wins are via knockout, and he is an LFA and Dana White Contender Series alum. Now, I'm sure everyone's tuned into the media. There's the embeddeds, there's the interviews. There are a lot of storylines behind this main event. Aljo is turning around very quick for a champion, and I think this was really against his decision. I don't think he wanted to come back as quick as he had to, but they said, hey, if you're going to fight Sean, Sean's already been out for a year, you're going to fight because I want it in Boston. I'm sure Dana wanted this fight in Boston. That's his, that's his hometown. Um, and he wanted these two to make it happen, and if not, you're going to give up your title for an interim t uh, championship. It's basically been three months almost on the dot. 
which is very tough uh, turnaround and the grueling five-round affair he had with the Olympic champion, Triple C, a very good Henry Cejudo. And um, he also is, has talked about potentially not being healthy with the elbow uh, or the bicep recovery. You know, he had the neck injury. I believe that's fully healed. Um, but I do not think he has been fully healthy. And as big as Aljamain Sterling gets, the weight cuts are not easy. That's a big reason why I think he knows this is his last bantamweight fight. So uh, when you think about weight cutting, what does that affect? It affects your endurance, your stamina. Yes, you can rehydrate. Yes, you can replenish. But is it really going to set you up for that 25-minute fight? Especially in a five-minute or five-round fight, a fight camp's probably you know, about 50 days long. So he went fight camp fight, literally had a month to enjoy himself fight camp fight. He's not healthy. He's dealing with the huge weight cuts. And also... Um, when you're dealing with tough weight cuts, you can also get a little bit more susceptible to a knockout. And he is fighting one of the purest snipers in all of the UFC. While Sean has almost had a year off, he's been preparing, knowing he was going to either fight Henry Cejudo or Aljamain Sterling. I believe he potentially had the chance to fight for the UFC title, but knowing that this is his first championship bout, which is five rounds, which is almost preparing for twice the amount of fighting, he wanted to be prepared. He wanted his cardio and conditioning to be on point. And that's why the Sugar Show has had such a great trajectory in his career. The way he's managing this and making decisions has been brilliant this far. And you have to give credit to his team because without his team, I don't think he would be where he is today. Um, but this is definitely the toughest test that Sean could have when it comes to styles in all of the bantamweight division and potentially in his career. Um, we have not seen Sean really get tested on the ground. He pieced up Pewter Yan enough that he turned Pewter Yan into a grappler, and I don't think Sean was prepared for that. So we did see him battle a little bit on his back in adversity in Abu Dhabi in his last victory. But we have not seen a guy who's going to come out um, right out the gates, look to get takedowns, look to control him, look to get his back. So there's a lot of unknowns there in this storyline as well. Um, we also have the idea that, um, you know, can Aljamain really handle the strikes and uh, the volume that Sean does with the brilliant footwork, the stance uh, changing, and the kicks that he provides over the course of five rounds? Again, we have seen him gas out previously. I think he's a lear learned a lot since then and knows how to you know, keep his stamina and endurance over the course of five rounds. But there's a ton of awesome headlines. I cannot wait to see this fight go down. I do think this uh, fight goes to decision. I think it's an all-out war. It's going to be box office. I do think Aljamain itches his victory. I do really think Sean has an opportunity to get a knockout, whether it's via knee, whether it's via big right. Um, he has a lot of weapons where he can provide that knockout. And over the course of five rounds, your chances go up to get the knockout. I just really think Aljamain's going to have success keeping Sean down, which Sean's proved that he's done well at. But, I, you know, we're talking about one of the greatest bantamweight champions of all time in his prime at 34 years old sean isn't even entering his prime yet at 28 years old so if this is the case i do expect sugar to be fighting for a title and potentially the being the bantamweight champion by the end of next year because let's say aljamain wins this there is going to be an interim championship fight i would assume it's cheetah um uh Marab versus somebody Potentially Cheeto if he wins, as Corey Sandhagen has that, that torn tricep, he's going to be out of the mix. 
Do you give Sean that opportunity after losing the title fight? I'm not too sure. So, you know, he's really only going to be one fighter right back in the title shot anyways. But I cannot wait to see it go down. I'm excited to see what the Sugar Show is all about because this is the last boss. This is the test. We're going to see the full package of the Sugar Show. And let's see if he shocks the world. But I am taking the Funk Master and I am avoiding him on a parlay if possible. But what a card. Boston is getting one dandy of a card, even with the short-term pullouts. I love the way the fights have shown up as we get to see can Sean really handle a grappling heavy attack. Zong Wei Lei against another power striker. That's box office. We got the future Ian Gary taking on a very good, well-rounded fighter that's going to put him in positions that he's never been in, much like the main event with the Sugar Show. We also have Mario Batista taking on another well-rounded grappler. The winner of this fight is going to be a problem in the bantamweight division. And then we have Marlon Chido Vera. Can he get back on track? Can he start throwing with volume? And can he get away with these slow starts? Because without finishes, the way he fights three-round affairs, it's going to be tricky. We have the Ultimate Fighter Championships, RoboCop, and the OG Showdown with Chris the All-American Weidman and Brad Tavares. It's going down. We got the Sugar Show live in Boston, the main event. And then next week, we have a stacked fight night card, early morning card. Um, it starts at uh, 6 a.m. Pacific on ESPN+. Plus. It's going down in Singapore. And talk about studs. We get Max Holloway and Chan, uh, Chan Sung Jung, the Korean zombie, in his retirement fight. So this is episode 11. Um, I'm your host, Shane Gillette. See you next week.